and welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, it is our monthly policy focus, and this month, we are looking at the situation in Israel. We're going to discuss the history of that nation, the importance of the standalone democracy in the Middle East, the ongoing conflict, and the suggested role of the United States. And joining us to talk about this is the author of the policy report, Megan Mobs. Megan Mobs is an experienced non-governmental policy and political leader and is a senior senior fellow right here at IWF. She previously served as a presidential appointee to the U.S. Military Academy and is a current gubernatorial appointee to the Virginia Military Institute Board of Visitors and much more. Megan, a pleasure to have you on the program and thanks so much for this policy focus. Awesome, Beverly. Thank you so much for having me. So there has been so much said about Israel. Just to to set the landscape on this, and real quick, want to let our listeners know if you want to look up this policy focus, you can go to IWF.org. It is titled Israel, so pretty easy to find this one. Um, and of course, this has been a discussion ever since October 7th, when not just Hamas terrorists, but also some civilians of Gaza went into Israel and committed some of the most barbaric crimes that we have seen committed against individuals, um, women, children, the elderly, et cetera. So we're going to get into to some of the atrocities, even though they have been reported on um, quite a bit, even though some people don't believe it. So we'll, we'll get into that. But we find ourselves in an interesting situation because there have been protests taking place, not just globally, but right here in the United States, talking about Palestine, talking about the region itself, talking about who owns this land, colonialist, all of this. And so I thought we could start with where you started in the policy focus, which is a really important aspect of this, and that is the history of Israel, the nations. Here's a big question. Do Palestinians have claim to this land? So I think the reality, Beverly, and this is where, and especially in this part of the world where it's just history goes so, 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 so far back in terms of who owned what, who owned when, um, who has claims to what. I think the reality is that the Israels, both biblically, so from the Bible, from the kind of Christian religious perspective, but also from the Jewish perspective, have had claims to this land for, for thousands of years. And so the reality is that like this land belonging to people, I think, becomes this very, very like contentious topic. And I think the reality is that the Israels absolutely have a claim to this land as being theirs from a historical perspective. Um, and that just needs to be acknowledged. And so when you hear things like, you know, the Palestinians are chants like, you know, from the river to the sea, that is a call for genocide. That's a call from the for the removal of the Israeli people from that specific portion of land. And let's talk about when Israel was formed itself. How was, when, when was that? And what were some of the events that led up to Israel forming its own nation? So it was formed after World War II. So there was this kind of anti, there was this, I'm sorry, pro-Zionist movement, which is the idea that the Israelis should have their, the Jewish people should have their own protected land. And it really gained substantial momentum post-World War II, as you might imagine, following the Holocaust, in which Jews did not feel safe anywhere. They did not feel safe in the Middle East. They didn't feel safe in Europe. And so it was really that push and that call for land that that was declared post-World War II following um, the mass genocide of Jews during that conflict. And what we often hear is that the Palestinian people were pushed out of this land. That's why they have to go back because Israel's are these colonizers. One thing I think is interesting about Israel that I, I don't think most, I shouldn't say most people, but a lot of people don't know is that it's not just Jewish people living in Israel. How many people, how many so-called Palestinians or think of Arab Israelis, mm -hmm. non-practicing Jews, what is the population makeup of the nation of Israel? 
Oh, I knew you're going to ask me like for exact numbers. And unfortunately, I don't have them right here on hand. So, but, but it, it's exactly your point, which is it is this kind of mixing pot of people that certainly there was Palestinians that left during the establishment of the Israeli state, but there are many that chose to stay. And so there are many different faiths inside Israel and there's many different ethnicities. So the idea that this is like a solely Jewish state is just quite frankly a falsehood. And this is the lone democracy in the Middle East. How important is it in the United States interest, but also just for the stability of the region for Israel to remain a vibrant democracy? It's critically important. And the reason being is that one, right, we, we understand that democracy leads to more freedoms, it leads to more protections. And so the ability to have a democracy in the Middle East, a stable democracy in the Middle East is critically important, because that particular region of the world is known to have some of the most autocratic regimes, theocratic regimes in which they oppress people. So having this model of democracy of what it looks like is very positive for a variety of reasons. One, those in the Middle East can look to Israel as, you know, it's not as far west as we are, just geographically speaking. Um, to your point earlier, it is a mix of Muslim and Jews and Christians. So all these different faiths who have freedom. So there's the ability to demonstrate that you can practice the faith and still have other freedoms outside of that. So you can have a government detached from a religion, which is extremely important to model for the Middle East. Um, and just in general, for the U.S. anyway, it allows us to have a significant ally, a trusted ally in the Middle East because it can allow us to a little bit project power through Israel. So projecting our military strength, our military capability, it allows us to also have a better apparatus for collecting intelligence in the Middle East. Um, so it is critically important for Israel to remain a thriving democracy in the Middle East, both for our interests, but also for the Israeli people clearly. And let's set the stage then for October 7th, because that's, of course, a little overview of the history of Israel, where we find ourselves today. But the claim is, is that Israel was treated, treating those living in the Gaza Strip poorly, um, that this was their their uprising was due to frustrations with the Israeli government, frustration with the, the situation as a whole. Can you explain to us the relationship of the Israeli government with Hamas leadership, the rest of the Palestinians prior to October 7th, was it a working relationship? So, so let's be clear, Hamas is a terrorist organization, right? So obviously they were in political power in Palestine, but they are a terrorist organization. And their belief system, a core function of their belief system is the eradication of the Israeli state and the eradication of the Jewish people. Meaning that they come from a place already of the Jewish state shouldn't exist, Israel shouldn't exist, and Jewish people as a people shouldn't exist, not just Israeli Jews, Jews across the world should not exist. So they are a terrorist organization hell-bent on the eradication of a people and of a country. So I, I think it's extraordinarily difficult for anyone to say, well, why didn't Israel have a working relationship with them? Well, this, this terrorist organization who may have been in political power, and that's also a very tenuous thing because Hamas also terrorizes Palestinian people. Like, let's not forget that Hamas is using its own people, using Palestinians as human shields. They're using schools. They're using hospitals. They take aid dollars to ensure that they can build their tunnels and not give it to their people. So Hamas is a terrorist organization. There, there was no real working relationship because you can't start from a working relationship with an organization that purports to want to kill anyone who practices a faith. So of course it was contentious. And that does not mean that then that meant that Hamas was somehow entitled to do what they did. The barbarity that they perpetuated on October 7th against innocence, and you mentioned it earlier, Beverly, women, children, elderly, is 
horrific. It has been the most horrific thing we've seen against the Jewish people since the Holocaust. The things that they did to people to terrorize them um, is truly, there are honestly, I, I don't know if I have words to describe it. Um, I was invited to, unfortunately, Israeli embassy this week to, to see the 45 minute video, 47 minute video about the atrocities. I couldn't attend this week, I'm going in January. Um, but even those that's already been publicly released are, are just horrific in nature. What they did, um, it wasn't just killing, it was torture. Um, it was the purposeful terrorizing and dismantling of the humanity of the people on October 7th. And journalists have seen those videos. You just mentioned that you're going to be seeing them soon. How does one brace themselves for seeing those type of atrocities? What, what are you doing personally to get oneself ready as much as you can get ready to see such barbarism? That's really important and really insightful and thoughtful question. I think we oftentimes are so even bombarded in the regular media without having like access to this kind of um, protected information. We are seeing horrific things coming out of Israel, out of the Middle East. Some of the descriptions of what happened on that day, um, as a mother of two daughters, uh, are just so unbelievably grotesque. I think the best thing that we can do is in some ways bear witness, as horrible as it is, steal ourselves that this actually happened to people. And in order to prevent it from happening again, we have got to bear witness. We have to understand the significance of what happened on October 7th to both understand the Israeli actions, why they're doing what they're doing, um, but also understand how to prevent it in the future and then be huge advocates, advocates for human rights, for women and children, um, advocates that women are often targeted and used during war and conflict. Their bodies are used as weapons of war just by virtue of being women. Um, and so the thing, I think the best thing we can do is arm ourselves with really good data, um, but also during that time frame, like recognize that it's okay if it's too much for you to read, to, to um, kind of take in, then take a break, take a break and then um, kind of go about your daily life and then try to hit it again when you can. And curious of your opinion on this. I personally think that Israel has handled the videos well, meaning that instead of it just being mass released where anybody could use it, and then of course it can be misused if if all those videos are out there. But having these these screenings for people, for reporters, for different people in intelligence, what do you make of their strategy behind how they're trying to disseminate the the information while still, of course, respecting the dignity of the people while doing it? I think they have to. I mean, I think the true one of the truest tragedies that come out of this is that there are still people denying that it occurred. And so I remember being young in school and studying the Holocaust and thinking to myself, how is it possible that people denied this was occurring? How is it possible that people couldn't accept what was staring them right in the face? And unfortunately, we're seeing that play out again in real time where you have people not acknowledging that this occurred, um, arguing like super minor points or small, teeny tiny details about it. And so that denial still exists and is very real. And so I think Israel has been placed in a really tough position where they've had to confront that denialism. They've had to really address it. Uh, but are trying to do it in a way that does protect the victims, that protects still the sanctity of the dead. Um, but I think that there has been a little bit of a struggle on their part to really kind of balance this information operation and warfare that we're seeing come out, right? There is this really heavy push, even in our own society and our own government, to, to do a ceasefire, saying that Israel is, you know, targeting civilians, there should be this humanitarian ceasefire, they're preventing water and food and medicine from getting to Palestinians. Um, and they are in some ways, unfortunately, losing a little bit of that, what we'd call an infor information operation or information warfare. And 
And so I think they're doing some things really well. I think this video is an example of that. And I think some other ones, they are having to play a really terrible game of countering a narrative that isn't really based in reality. Like I mentioned before, uh, Hamas is known for taking aid dollars, for taking any aid that comes in and utilizing it for themselves. There was a video that just came out, I think yesterday, this month, a couple of weeks ago, um, in which the IDF discovered the longest tunnel that they've discovered. I mean, it's massive. You can drive like an F-150 through it. It's huge. And it's like modern day. We're talking about millions of dollars to build this tunnel. And so when they talk about it, people that are starving or don't have access to things, you really only have to look at the infrastructure that Hamas has built for themselves to perpetuate terror, um, to recognize that narrative is severely flawed when we say that Israel is doing some of these things. And I want to talk about the tunnels just a bit. You do focus on these in in the policy focus. And I think it's, it's based on this question that I have, which is how sophisticated of a terrorist organization are we dealing with? So in some respects, we think, okay, not as sophisticated as some of the others, um, kind of a hodgepodge of people with Iran backing them. But then you hear about some of these tunnels and the sophistication of them. What exactly are we dealing with and how much of it is, in your opinion, being fed by Iran to them? So Iran is a critical player for all of this, right? Like they are the kind of center of, if you're looking at the wheel with spokes, like Iran is right in the center of all of this, especially in that region, right? That's where they really influence their power and try to undermine Western um, ideas and value systems and certainly American. I mean, they hate America, of course. So I, I think though that ultimately, and this is going to be maybe a little controversial as I say it, which is that it doesn't matter how sophisticated Hamas is necessarily, because we've seen and we saw over the last 20 years of war, I served in Afghanistan, that we can be we can be defeated, we can be beat by by people wearing flip flops, right? We are the most sophisticated army in the world, the US Army. Um, and there were times that we were defeated by people that lived in caves, that wore flip-flops, that didn't have technological advancement. Um, warfare is this very, very strange thing where sometimes you can have technological superiority and still not have a battlefield advantage. And that can be for a whole host of reasons. And there was a great article earlier this month about how we are spending $2 million per $2,000 drone that the Houthis out of Yemen are shooting at our ships and, and targets in uh, the Red Sea and in the Middle East, right? So there's this complete imbalance of $2 million of American kind of military might against $2,000. Uh, so Hamas is sophisticated enough, and that's what matters. They are sophisticated enough to execute a highly coordinated attack, which they did. And let's make no mistake, Absolutely. Iran has been involved in training Hamas. Iran has been involved in funding Hamas. Um, I think eventually over time, we're going to see some Russian influence that also played out there as we kind of begin to see this burgeoning kind of new modern day axis of evil between Iran, North Korea, uh, Russia. And we're going to see that begin to, to emerge a little bit. So they are sophisticated enough that they were able to execute an extremely well-coordinated attack that came from air, land, and sea. And make no mistake, that is a challenging thing. They also were able to circumvent a substantial amount of our signals intelligence that should have identified that this was happening. So they, they kind of demonstrated the discipline necessary to do this planning in a vacuum so that it wasn't caught um, in a kind of a big scale way. Now you will hear there's been some whispers and kind of some kind of articles that have come out that this was warned about, that Israel did have some intelligence, maybe even Egypt had some intelligence, and those warnings didn't reach the necessary level for a 
decision maker, or if they did, they were kind of ignored. And there's going to be a necessary autopsy in the aftermath of this about decision making. Um, but that's kind of a long way of answering your question, Beverly, which is that they're sophisticated enough. And that it still means they are very, very dangerous. And the IDF, Israel, has to ensure that they eradicate Hamas so that they don't do what they did again on October 7th. And when you talk about eradicating Hamas, of course, there are the terrorists who are within the Gaza Strip um, that Israel is targeting. But we also know that Hamas leadership is not there. It's elsewhere. You have leaders in Qatar who are in communication and driving some of, of the commands that they would give to their, their own terrorists, um, their militants that they have. What is the United States' position on trying to get Qatar to release the protection of Hamas leadership. What what do we do about that aspect of it? Well, so because the Hamas is designated as a terrorist organization, we like we are using the Qataris as the interlocutors, as the kind of kind of folks to help us move these talks forward and address some of these things. And I think it's a really important point that you just made, Beverly, that the leadership of Hamas is really living it up and living the good life in Qatar. They're living in fabulous apartments or houses, driving fabulous cars. So, so all of that money that is going into Palestine, so much of it gets siphoned off to finance the lifestyle of the senior leader. Leadership. It is not making it to the Palestinian people. And so we are relying, we are having to really rely on the Qataris to really help move these conversations forward. Unfortunately, under this current administration, there has been a bit of a vacuum of power in the Middle East when it comes to American presence. We've really soured our relationships substantially in the Middle East, unfortunately. And we saw that when you know Biden and Blinken went to the Middle East, how some of these meetings got shuffled around. They didn't actually meet with, with Blinken initially when he first went there, they got canceled. Um, and all of that is a testament to like, we're really having to rely on the Qataris to do it because we don't necessarily have the necessary um, cachet in the in terms of negotiating that we should right now in the Middle East. So that people can comp- prepare themselves for the potential length of this war, how long do you think it's going to go on with b- the miles and miles of tunnels? How difficult does it make it for the ID- IDF to try to rid this area of Hamas? What should people prepare themselves for? So I think it's going to be a long war in the sense that they're the kind of rebuilding phase, the necessary kind of... Um, reconstruction discussions that have to happen that may not be in the context of a hot war where you have like guns firing, for example, um, it's going to take a while. It's really, it really is going to take a long time. And I think that then a long time, I guess it's relative, um, but there, there is no idea. Uh, the, the idea of like a quick war is, I think, unfortunately, a fallacy that we often want to believe in because I think that the American people especially um, have really been soured on the idea of long conflict. I think where we talk about the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, where we have used the words forever war to describe them. I think that we look at all wars as like, well, why can't they wrap it up very quickly? Well, it, it takes a while. Warfare takes a while, um, it's especially the kind of decisive warfare that Israel is going to have to wage in terms of the eradication of Hamas. Um, earlier this month, there was uh, kind of the IDF released a report saying they were kind of at the last stronghold of the Hamas kind of military might. Um, so what that looks like, it's unsure a little bit, um, especially because Hamas as a terrorist organization, they have pockets, right? They, it's like any terrorist organization. It is a very decentralized network and it's a very decentralized structure in some ways. And so there is going to be necessary and continuous action to kind of capture all of those different pockets. So it will take a while. I think if we also begin to see some any type of escalation happening, especially when it comes to shipping channels. So there have been over a hundred attacks on American interests, American um, targets in 
inside the Middle East uh, in Syria and Iraq. And that's coming from the Houthis in Yemen. And the Houthis are also very aligned with Iran. I said earlier how Iran is at the center of the spoke, right? So you have Hezbollah in uh, Lebanon, you have the Houthis in Yemen, you have Hamas in Palestine, all of them are allied with Iran. And if you begin to see these kind of escalating attacks, which we are seeing, I mean, 100 attacks against US interests since October 7th is a significant uptick uh, in action in the, in the Middle East without truly kind of major effort by the US to, to stop them, you begin to have a potential for not just a longer conflict to your question, Beverly, but a more intense conflict that brings in other regional players um, and could potentially bring in the U.S. And let's end on that note, the United States and their role with all of this. You just laid out the increase of attacks against the United States during this time. The United States is walking this fine line of wanting to still be a strong force without being dragged into a major conflict in the Middle East. What is that? What is that tightrope like to walk? What What does the United States need to do? So we need to be more aggressive in targeting exactly where we know true hard military targets are, are, are kind of high value targets uh, in Iran, in Syria. Um, we need to get very serious about deterrence. And, and what I mean by that is that we have kind of done these like very small, limited level kind of targeted attacks um, in response to these attacks from the Houthis and from other uh, folks in the Middle East. And it's not working. Right. So that's it, it, very clear that our kind of deterrence right now, our efforts to deter future attacks has failed. And so what that means is that we then have a responsibility to kind of unfortunately climb that escalation ladder. So if what we're doing isn't working and we're kind of like here in terms of response, well, then we need to increase. Um, and, and I think that we are beginning to recognize and do that. There's kind of some deliberations within the Department of Defense that are happening. Certainly within the White House, it seems that some uh, recommendations from the Department of Defense have gone to the White House for kind of um, approval for targeting specifically some of these other targets to help with that. Um, we're also seeing the beginning of, of kind of a group of, of allies come together specifically around opening up shipping channels in the Red Sea. I mean, you have major shipping companies who are saying that we, we're avoiding the Red Sea. We are, we are no longer going to move around the Cape of Good Hope in Africa to do all of our deliveries. That's a major, major blow to the world economy to commerce. Um, and, and honestly, our, the U.S. Navy was created to ensure that there was free control of the seas, that people could engage in commerce, could engage in shipping without being terrorized with by the pirates. I mean, that's initially why the U.S. Navy was really, that was their charter, why it existed. So the fact that one, it seems that people don't trust that we're going to be able to protect assets in the Red Sea, and two, that the attacks are still occurring on us in Iraq and Syria demonstrate that our current level of deterrence is no longer working. So we have got to do more and we have got to be more aggressive in responding to these attacks. Well, I think this is such an important policy focus that you worked on because there is so much misinformation about Israel and what's taking place. So just really gives a good background of the history that people can read of the nation of Israel and also more information than what we just talked about here about what the United States should do. Mega Mobs, a really great piece of work. Thank you so much for your work on that. And also for joining us today. Thanks, Beverly. And thank you all for joining us. I hope you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks. Too. So do leave us a rating review on iTunes. It does help. And we want to let you know that before you go, that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. An investment in IWF fuels 
fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. So please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting IWF.org backslash donate. That's IWF.org backslash donate. And last, if you love this episode, please share it with your friends so they can know where they can find more She Thinks. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for watching.